So I want to encourage you to open your hearts this morning to the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Take something that I say and really touch and impact your life. Uh, Lord, speak to us at the level that we live. Amen. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for every one of your people. I thank you for everyone that will be listening uh, on the Internet and by podcast. And I just pray, Father, for a powerful anointing to declare your truths today. Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ today that testifies on our behalf, that speaks mercy. I thank you for the cleansing of that blood. I ask for your blood to touch my mouth and my lips and the hearts and the minds and the ears of my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 12, we're going to look at a couple of scriptures. Let's start in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 26. Talk about how the gospel impacts, how the gospel impacts our hearts and then should through us be impacting culture when you get it right. Because it's not just about life and the hereafter or the thereafter or the whenever. It needs to be about life right here and now. And if ever there was a time for a genuinely Christian voice, it's today. Matthew 12:25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? The word Satan in the Greek, if it was translated correctly, would simply be the accuser. So let's read it that way. If the accuser drives out the accuser, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So Jesus is making a principle. He's saying you can't drive out the accuser with the accuser. That's really what he's saying. We, we, we preach this message from a standpoint of division. And we say if you're divided then your kingdom cannot stand. But if you look at it in its context, they're coming accusing Jesus of having a demon and casting out demons by demons. And he's reflecting their culture back to them. Because they're coming to him with an accusation to change him and correct him and fix him. Set him straight. He's a troublemaker. And he says you can't cast out accusation with accusation. It's not possible to do it. Because all you end up with is accusation. You cannot combat Satan with Satan. You cannot combat a satanic principle by employing and operating another satanic principle in the realm of relationships. (laughs) And yet, what I'm going to attempt to show you this morning is this is the foundation of our society. And not just the foundation of our society, but the foundation of every society. Give me just a second. Can I do something? Let me just, I just had a thought. Let me, um, let me take a commercial break here real quick. Just think about that for a second. Yeah, there it is. All right. So I'll come back to that. All right. Sorry, my ADD is kicking in on me again. Come with me to Joshua 7. Joshua and I'm going to read this whole chapter, so it's going to be kind of lengthy. I'm going to highlight some things as I'm reading it, and I'll come back and I'll further highlight it. But I want you to kind of get it while I'm reading it. The Bible amazes me sometimes when it starts to open up by revelation to you. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says, But the Israelites, plural, were unfaithful in regard 
to the devoted things. Now, let me just stop and comment here. When they had conquered the previous city, which was Jericho in the last chapter, they were not supposed to take any of the booty. They were not supposed to take any of the bounty, any of the goods, any of the stuff. It was All of it was to be destroyed because it was considered uh, devoted or considered the curse. Or actually, it's kind of a bad translation. It says God put it to ban. It means wipe everything out. And they didn't do that. So that's what it's talking about here. The Israelites, the whole community, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of uh, this guy, the son of the other guy, the son of the other guy, of the tribe of Judah, (laughs) took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region, because that worked so well the last time. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it and do not weary the whole army for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about thirty six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Look at what Joshua says. Then Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Now, isn't that what the other ten spies were saying? Before they went into the land. So, Israel, all of Israel's been unfaithful. They didn't use wisdom when they went out to battle. They didn't seek the Lord. And Joshua has backslid. <laughs> Their leader. You see the picture? Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. They they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things, the things that were put to man. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you unless you destroy whatever among you has been put to the ban or is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people and tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Now, in in other translations... What it's saying here is the ones that are chosen by lot. So it's not like God's coming out in the flesh and pointing them out. They're casting lots to decide these things. Whoever is caught with devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. And he had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. And Joshua had his family come forward man by man. And Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him and tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. 
They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took the things from the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. (laughs) Now, I want to talk to you this morning about the scapegoat principle. The scapegoat principle. Because interesting story, it starts out by saying all Israel was unfaithful to God. All of Israel, right? And God says, God himself says, all of Israel has taken plunder, right? And they didn't seek the Lord about, they, really what happened was Joshua sent spies and the spies come down and they give him bad advice. Because later in the story, when they seek the Lord about how to take Ai, he says, send every man you have. So you had lazy, poor planning. You had corporate unfaithfulness. You had lazy, poor planning. And you had Joshua backsliding and sounding like one of the ten tribes and the other generation that died out in the wilderness. And so the question becomes, who's to blame for Israel's failure? So what happens in the... And, and obviously they lost the battle. It couldn't be... Now watch this, because here's it's tricky. It couldn't be because they didn't use wisdom. It couldn't be because the whole community was unfaithful. It couldn't be because Joshua himself still hadn't sorted himself out. It couldn't be because of his poor leadership. There had to be someone to blame for the hardship that the community was experiencing. And so they single it down to one person. And when they find that one person, they say, you are the one who caused the trouble. You're the one who did it. You're the one that caused our corporate failure. Let's get rid of you. And by getting rid of you, God will feel better. And we'll be able to go up and take the land. Or take AI. Interesting, isn't it? So Aiken becomes the scapegoat. Because the scapegoat principle is this. When a community cannot, when an individual and a community cannot take responsibility for individual sin or corporate sin, and there's trouble... In fact, it just kind of goes like this. How many of you know there's trouble in this life? <laughs> when Jesus himself said, in this world you'll have tribulation. <laughs> doesn't go on our refrigerators. We don't walk the floor, face the floor, quoting it and claiming it and believing it. But it's still true. <laughs> it's still in the Bible. The same Jesus that said, you could speak to the mountain and the mountain will move, is the same Jesus that said, in this world you're going to have tribulation. Then he says, be of good cheer, but I've overcome the world. Right? So the answer to trouble is Christ who has overcome. The answer to trouble is never to find the troublemaker and cast him out. The answer to trouble is never for the accuser to narrow down the accuser and cast out the accuser. But the way our psyches work, and this works collectively more powerfully than it does individually, but the way that our psyches work is that when there's trouble, when there's stress, when there's disorder, when there's fear, when there is threat, when the community becomes uncomfortable, we have to find someone to blame. And if we can find someone to blame, and we can deal with that someone, then peace and order and harmony is restored. 
It's interesting because sociologists and anthropologists have studied uh, this throughout every culture in history. They've looked at all the myth- mythologies. Uh, there's a guy, uh, I think he was an anthropologist, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, named René Girard. And René Girard, when he was reading the myths, he began to discover something about every ancient culture. Every ancient culture was founded upon a myth of the death of, of, of the blood of a victim, of a human being who was a victim. But in every myth, the victim was deserving, except when he got to the Hebrew Scriptures. Because what he found in that, he actually converted and became a Christian, because when he began to study, he began to, he began to see how the Hebrew Scriptures, and particularly Christianity, stands apart from every other culture ever formed in, in, in the world, and that it tells the story in a different way. Because, all right, I'm, I'm getting too many thoughts going all at the same time. So just understand, this is this is something. Um, this isn't something I came up with. This isn't something I got in a dream revelation from the Lord. This is something that can be scientifically verified. It can be verified by scholars. This is how we think and operate and work as human beings, especially when we begin to to congregate together in communities. But even if we didn't have the scientific research to go to back it up or support it or to find it or to discover it, we can discover it in the Bible. Now, here's the interesting thing about the Old Testament. Not everything about the Old Testament is pure. Not everything about the Old Testament is pure revelation. It's why Jesus had to come. We looked at it in the first service. You can get the tape message from the first service. But how many have ever heard in the, the saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin? And, and it's usually applied to our personal sin. How many of you have ever bothered to find the context of that verse in Hebrews chapter 9? Because in its context, it's not talking about individual sin. We read it in the first uh, service. I'll just take you there mentally. And anybody who's in the first service can verify what I'm saying. The context for that was Moses, when he gave the teaching, when he wrote the old, what we call the Old Testament, the first five books at least, He wrote the scroll and he shed blood. And guess what he did with the blood? He put the blood on the scroll and on the people and on the tabernacle. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us the purpose of the blood was to cleanse from impurity and from sin. Why would Moses have to put blood on the old covenant to cleanse it from impurity if it was totally pure? Because actually what we need to see in the Old Testament is we need to be able to see the revelation of Christ who is going to come. But we also need to be able to see the revelation of the fallen mind of Adam. Because the Old Testament reveals them both. Are you breathing? Speaking of breathing, the Bible says that Scripture is inspired of God. Paul's talking about the Old Testament, and he doesn't use the word inspired. He says it's God-breathed. And the book he's talking about, the first time God breathes, where does He breathe? Into Adam. So all the Old Testament Scriptures came through Adam who's fallen. And has distorted the voice of God. So what happens is, is we find Israel adopting the patterns of the ancient Near East culture. Because in the ancient Near East culture, you, your God is like, my dad's bigger than your dad kind of thing. Like my dad could beat up your dad. That's how they did warfare. My God's bigger than your God, and to prove it, we're going to win in the battle. And if we don't win in the battle, it's because, of some, it's because our God was not strong enough or powerful enough. So that's the context in which they're having to deal. And so they interpret everything in the ancient Near East is interpreted, if there's bad events, it's because the gods are angry. But it's not God, it's the projection of their consciousness.
So the Bible reveals, now let's, let's back up with the Bible. The Bible reveals that societies rise and fall on the bloodshed of others. Because who founded the first city in the Bible? Does anybody know? Who, out of whose line did culture come? Does anybody know? It was Cain. Cain founded the first city. Cain founded the first city. And he founded it on the bloodshed of his innocent brother. On a guilty conscience. And it was out of Cain that music came and art came and technology came and everything that develops as part of culture. Okay, let's back up. Let's do this differently. Let's back up a little bit further because you guys are giving me those, as Dr. O would say, those tone of eyes. Let's do it differently. Who's the first scapegoat in the Bible? Somebody said Eve. Somebody said the snake. All right, you, you got the right story. Let's, let's look at it. Just let me take you there mentally. Can I take you there mentally? They hear, they hear God. Now, Adam has sinned, right? And God comes to Adam. Adam has sinned. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. God is coming to rectify things. God is not coming to judge. God is not coming to punish. God is coming to rectify. If you want a real Hebraic understanding of who God is, even outside of, of the understanding of Jesus Christ as being the, the full image and reflection of God, the foundation of the Hebraic understanding of who God is and who Israel is, is that they are rectifying the world. Worlds. And that God, and that their mission is to rectify, to make right, to heal, to mend, to restore. So when God comes to Adam, the fall has happened, and God is coming to Adam to rectify him. But Adam is so overcome with his own guilt that he cannot be rectified, because the only way for Adam to be rectified is to realize the sin that's within him and to own it. But he does not do that. God asks him, did you eat at the tree that I told you not to eat at? And he doesn't say, yes, I ate at the tree. If he'd have said, yes, I ate at the tree, then rectification could have begun. But he runs from rectification. And he says, no, it was the woman. So he blame shifts. He doesn't own his own sin. He takes his sin and he, bl- and, he, and he projects it and he shifts it to someone else. But the issue is he actually doesn't shift it to the woman. He, because here's what he says. It's the woman that you gave to be with me. So who does he shift his sin to? And who does he shift his guilt to? He shifts it over to God. So the original scapegoat from the very beginning, the original sin bearer and the one who was bearing the guilt was God in the garden coming as a projection from the fallen mind of Adam. So when Cain kills Abel, does God come to Cain to punish Cain? God comes to rectify Cain. If you read the story carefully, especially in some translations that are a little bit closer to the original Hebrew language, what you discover is all the guilt and burden of sin is coming from Cain. And what's so fascinating is in the oral tradition, Cain drinks the blood of Abel. So when God confronts Cain to rectify him and he says, the blood of your brother is crying from the ground, he's not just talking about the soil of the dirt that he's walking on. He's talking about the soil of his heart that's consumed his brother that now is leaving him tormented with guilt. But instead of being able to own his sin and be rectified, he runs He moves further away from God and he founds a city. Getting awful quiet in this evangelical free church. That's what it was before we were here. So So there is this thing called communal violence. When tragedy or unfavorable circumstances happen, there comes, now watch this, the unconscious need to assign blame. This frustration is projected upon an innocent victim who becomes the scapegoat for why things aren't as they should be or as we desire them to be. See, 
Idolatry, really, is making God in your own image. What an idol is, is, is the unconscious projections of our own heart. We put them on God and make them to be God. So a lot of stuff that you see God taking the blame for in the Old Testament isn't God at all. It's merely revealing that from the very beginning, God was the scapegoat, the sin bearer, and the guilt bearer. So when you read God ordered them to destroy all this, all the people, it's their sin that they can't own being projected onto God and God willingly allowing Himself to be the scapegoat and the sin bearer for the sake of the community. So here's how it works. We, we get into struggle with one another. We're okay by ourselves, maybe. But we start competing for the same stuff. It starts when you're a little kid. Right? I mean, you have 50 toys, 50 Legos. And my boys are fighting over the same Lego. No, that's mine. No, that's mine. No, that's mine. No, that's mine. Can I get a witness? Right? And then pretty soon it leads to some kind of violence or blame or shame or something. Right? Now compound that in a family. Compound, I mean, they compete for our affections. One of the boys comes, climbs on my lap. The other boy wants to climb on my lap. Then the other boy's like, no, get off his lap. No, and then they're fighting over my lap. Right? Now multiply that times however big your community that you consider yourself a part of is. And you... And then we have different communities. And then, but, but life stinks, gang. I mean, hard things, bad things, horrible things happen in life. And we do horrible things to one another. And as we do horrible things to one another, it creates tension. It creates problem. It creates frustration. It creates anger. It creates hatred. It creates bitterness. It creates anxiety. It creates fear. It creates victim mentalities. And so pretty soon, we've got to sort out the problem. And usually the problem is some Someone that we need to blame. We begin to operate not from the position of Christ. We begin to operate from the position of the accuser, thinking the accuser can cast out the accuser. Not realizing that we're standing in the mind of Cain and in the mind of Adam and absent, completely absent from the mind of Christ. But we project it onto God and we say, God wants the same justice I want. God wants this fixed. So, the, you know, in family, family systems therapy, one of the things they talk about is that in a family system, you can have a, a member of the family who becomes the scapegoat for the sin of the family. Usually, it's the most empathic member of the family. Usually, it's the one that has a unique has a tender heart and a unique gifting for being able to sense what other people are feeling and also to be able to identify with other people. And because we all have our own unconscious things that we don't want to deal with, then little Johnny or little Susie begins to believe, I'm the cause of daddy's anger. I'm the cause of mommy's anger. The sin really is in the heart of dad. The sin really is in the heart of mom. But Johnny begins to believe that he's the cause of it, so he takes the the anger, he takes the shame, he takes the guilt onto himself because he's too little to differentiate. So then the rest of the family finds somebody to blame. We call them the black sheep of the family, but really they're the scapegoat of the family. They're the reason the family's not functioning. They're the reason that, that there's chaos. They're the reason that there's tension. They're the reason that there's struggle. And so they develop a victim mentality and they go from, one, from being victimized from one relationship and event to the next relationship and the next event and so on and so on and so on and then they pass it on to their kids. That's why you, you really have to be willing in our culture to look at the power structures. Because if you are the group in power, 
you still have to deal with the scapegoating principle inside your own community. And you're still going to justify it. And you're going to sanctify it in the name of God. Because if you're the group in power, because here's it's, the scapegoat is never somebody like you. The scapegoat is never somebody who thinks like you. The scapegoat is never somebody who acts like you. The scapegoat is somebody that won't get with your program. So if you are the institution, if you are the people group that's empowered, when you start scapegoating, it's not going to be another of your own kind. And you have the power. Your violence is sanctified, be it in the name of the state or in the name of God. But it's still a scapegoat. And every society is founded on the bloodshed of another. Every society is founded on the oppression and minimization and disenfranchising of another group. So guess what happens? That creates angst. That creates stress. That creates pressure. And so now we need to find another scapegoat. Now this group finds themselves looking for a scapegoat so they can do violence to that scapegoat so that they can protect the community. But because their violence isn't sanctified by the state... Their violence isn't sanctified by religion. Then guess what happens? Now there's stress and tension. Now there's wars. Where's God in this? Where's God for Johnny or Susie? Where's God for the... See, the amazing thing about the Bible, I mean, you know, for, for centuries... Oh, Jesus, yes, sir. For centuries, centuries, probably since Constantine, the state has manipulated... Christianity to endorse the state's actions and activities. So that we merge national symbols and our religious symbols and we don't think anything about it. Because if God endorses the state, then if you oppose the state, you're opposing God. Get off of quietness, uh, what, what do we call it? Evangelical free church. John 8.44, let's look at that real quick. John chapter 8.44. See, I think we've, we've misunderstood a lot of the gospel, I, I believe. John 8.44 Jesus talking to the religious. He's talking to the power structures. Yeah, I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought there. This is what I was going to say. Um, the Bible, the Bible story, is not told. We, we the Christian story, the Christian nationalist story, is told from the power structures, the governments, and the government-sanctioned churches. Which is why your founding fathers wanted separation of church and state wasn't just for religious freedom. It was to not empower the state to use religion to manipulate the masses. Right? 
But the Bible's an interesting book because it's not told from the perspective of the powerful. It's told from the perspective of the fringes. The first books of the Bible don't come from the Egyptians. They come from Egyptian slaves that spent 430 years in Egyptian bondage. The New Testament doesn't come from the Romans. The New Testament comes from the most despised people group under Roman oppression. Much of your Old Testament doesn't come when Israel's in power. Much of the Old Testament comes when Israel's in exile or going into exile. And the only time Israel actually is a nationalistic power is the time that they are most rebuked by the prophets and most critiqued. But when you represent the structure and power, you don't want to hear the prophetic critique. You know why? Because it's easier to say, it was them that God put with me and not me. And rectification cannot happen on any level until someone breaks the cycle and stops using Satan to cast out Satan. John 8:44. Is this all right? It'll make you think, if nothing else. John 8:44. Jesus tells the religious power structure, "You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." So murder and deceit. Cain and Abel, kill your brother. You're jealous over the favor of God that your brother had and you didn't. And instead of allowing God to look into your heart to rectify you, you kill your brother because you can't stand the fact that he got favor that you didn't get. And then you hide it. So you kill the innocent and then cover it up with lies. That's the heart that's the root of the satanic system, the satanic kingdom. See, but the church, we as evangelicals, we just want to deal with, we don't even want to deal with individual sin and guilt. We certainly don't want to deal with uh, institutional sin. And the thing about Jesus that we'll see in a minute is it says in Isaiah 53, he had none, no violence, nor was there any deceit on his lips. See, the Bible in Genesis tells us that society was founded on the murder of the innocent being covered up, but Jesus refounds the world. Jesus refounds the world, not as the one using power to execute, but coming as the one willing to be executed. He refounds the world, not on his victory, not on the bloodshed. Jesus establishes his kingdom. He recreates his world, not on the bloodshed of others, not on the bloodshed of other innocent victims. He himself comes as the innocent victim, and he founds his society on his own innocent bloodshed, which is why in the early church it was such an honor to be a martyr, because to be a martyr was to be the foundation. When the church father says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, because God's founding his church on a Complete upside down, completely upside down from the way that the world has been founded and operated. And, and we cannot be Christians if we are more com- identified with our communities than we are with the Christ who is, tra- who is seeking to transform them. We cannot be light if we think like them. We cannot be salt if we think like them because we just perpetuate, we just line up with the accuser, the accuser casting out the accuser, casting out the accuser. Violence begetting violence beginning violence, beginning violence, beginning violence. How does it end? The only power that can break the cycle is the power of a forgiving victim. 
See, watch this. We, we've had the atonement all wrong because we thought it was sinners in the hands of an angry God. But the Bible doesn't paint that picture. The Bible paints the picture of God in the hands of angry sinners. It's not God that must be appeased. Watch this. John the Baptist. How does John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Come on, I know this doesn't preach as good as the prosperity message. And Oh, we're going to have victory today. Oh, Jesus. Victory, victory, victory. Glory, hallelujah. Because it gets at the heart. Right? Watch what John the Baptist does. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're offering a lamb as an appeasement offering, you're offering, it's the Lamb of humanity to God to appease the God. Therefore, if it's the Lamb of God, God says, I'm coming to the table of sacrifice and bringing my lamb in an attempt to reconcile you using your own system, but turning it upside down. Let's read this, Isaiah 53, and we'll, 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 we'll be done. We're going to minister. Let me rephrase that. The Holy Spirit, I think, wants to minister. Some of you, you've found yourself in the position of the scapegoat. Be it in your family, be it in society, be it on the job. We do it on the job, don't we? I mean, you can see this playing out at every level of society. And the beauty of the gospel is, is that if you have been playing the role of the scapegoat, Christ especially came for you. Christ especially identifies with you because he himself was the scapegoat. What did the high priest say when Jesus was before him? He said, better one man to die than the whole community. It's the whole scapegoat principle. Let's protect the community and kill him even if he's innocent. It's better that one innocent man die than the whole community disintegrate. Isaiah 53. Now read this with this in mind. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, not God. The punishment that brought us peace, not God peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent... So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his 
Do you get it? Here's the amazing thing. That like my whole, I, I went back, I said, Lord, I just want to understand Christ better. And it's transformed the way I think about everything. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. He wasn't accusing humanity and then taking his wrath out on Jesus so he could feel better. That's appeasement. That's the projection of the fallen mind of Adam. God was in Christ, dying, in order that he might reconcile the world to himself, not himself to the world. So the most amazing thing, if Jesus, Jesus said this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's the most amazing thing. Jesus did not, God the Son did not come as, did not come to function independently of His Father as the sin bearer. God the Father since the garden had been the sin bearer. God the Father since through all throughout the Old Testament was the one who bore the blame for all the violence that had taken place throughout the history of Israel as a picture for us of how we do scapegoating in our society because he's seeking to rectify and he's seeking to heal and he's seeking to redeem. So all the Lamb of God did was reveal who his Father was from the very beginning. The one who bore our sin and carried our iniquities and took our pain and took our guilt and took our punishment. The one who says, I'd rather you blame me than for me to blame you. I'd rather you punish me than for me to punish you. And what does he say when he's dying? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's the revelation of the unconscious mind. Way before Freud. They don't, they're, they're unconscious about what they're doing. And it's interesting because Rene Girard, who, who discovered a lot of this about how the scapegoat principle functions, he says the scapegoat principle does not work effectively if it's conscious. It only works effectively if it's unconscious. You can only transfer your sins to someone else when you're unconscious of your own sins. And you can only feel better about killing the victim if you can assign enough blame that you feel like that sucker deserves it. Got what he deserved. Therefore, now we can be at peace. Therefore, now we can feel better as a community. Therefore, now we can feel better as a nation. And Christ completely undoes that. Christ completely overturns it. That's why he triumphed over principalities and powers. You've got to quit thinking about principalities and powers as just dark shadowy figures that hang out someplace and make your life miserable. The principalities and powers that he's talking about is the Roman government and the religious institution. And he overturned them. You know how? He became a forgiving victim. He became a forgiving victim. And sometimes, oftentimes, perhaps maybe even more often than not, the way that we release healing into our communities, the way we release healing into our relationships, the way we release, he, release healing into our families is by being a forgiving victim. But in order to do that, we have to own our own accusing voice. We have to own the Satan inside of us. And take that to the cross. So that the Satan inside of us gets triumphed over by the cross. And we can join like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Trent and Tammy have been coming for a while. Trent and I were 
We were best friends growing up. We got in a lot of trouble together. We had a lot of fun together. We did a lot of crazy stuff. Since we were like nine, ten years old. And something happened. We got, we got sideways with each other. And, um, and we got offended at each other. And we didn't talk to each other for years. And I was reading this book. I hated the book, to be honest with you. I thought it was worthless. But there was one statement in the book that absolutely haunted me. It said, when it comes to reconciliation, if you are the problem, the way you perceive it, it's 2% your fault and 98% the other person's fault. You are 100% responsible for your 2%. And I read that and I took the Lord up on it. I said, okay, Lord. I want you to show me where I've been 2% wrong. And immediately, immediately, the situation, and a situation where I felt the most justified, passed before my mind. And I could sit down and convince you I was justified. But what I did was still wrong. And so I owned it. And I'm doing all this, yeah, but what this person, yeah, but what about what they did? Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Okay, Lord, you got me. So I sat down that night because I knew if I, if I slept on it, it wasn't going to happen. I found the guy's email that I had offended. And I wrote an apology without mentioning anything that they did. Like to kill me. It wasn't Trump, somebody else. And I shoot it off. I'm like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I get up the next day and I get a phone call. First time I'd heard from Trent in years. And he said, hey, I just want to go have coffee with you. And I'm like thinking, does he want to rehash old times? wants to rehash the past? I mean, I don't think it's been eight years or something, maybe even longer, maybe longer than that. And so we went and had coffee, and Trent says, you know what, I've been offended at you all this time. He said, but I I need to own it. And, And I love this. He said, I'm not even going to tell you what it was that I was offended about because it was all on me. And I just want to ask for your forgiveness. And to this day, he hasn't told me what it is. But you know what? That brought healing to our relationship. And you know what? I got to believe that somehow it was also connected to the letter I wrote that night before. That somehow... When we own stuff and we stop accusing and we release forgiveness, somehow there's something so powerful that begins to be released that's affecting situations and people rectifying things that God has wanted rectified but hasn't been able to rectify. Because it takes somebody to stand up and say, I've genuinely been victimized, but I'm not innocent. And I forgive those who victimize me. Gang, that is Christianity. That is Christianity. Christianity is not a way for you to become empowered to get your way because then you'll just extract your revenge. And the reason we don't see more demonstrations of power is because we can't get this right. Because if we really, if God took the wraps off, what we would do to one another because unconsciously we need to scapegoat. You want to hear how we do it in the church? And this is where I'll close. Want to hear how we do it in in our movement? Us, me, little confession time for me, because I'm a preacher, right? I turned off my thing. Darn it! It's going to take me a second. I didn't want to preach this today, but the Lord assured me it was the right word. And I really believe, if we can own this, man, there's powerful healing 
that's going to take place in your life, take place in your family, take place in your marriages, take place in your communities. I really believe that. Sad that on, on, and I apologize if I'm speaking to you, I apologize, but you need to hear this. It's sad that one of the most accusing voices I hear or see on Facebook comes from Christians who feel so right and so justified and so endorsed by God for the accusations that they're spewing out. Can I give you one more example? I'm going to, whether you give me permission or not, but it's always good to ask. Sorry. Come on. Watch this. When we idolize great revivals of history and we compare them to our current spiritual state, we never measure up. Some assume if revival isn't sweeping the land, then someone is to blame. And the revivalist is the heroic prophet called to point the finger and lead the people out of bondage. There's sin in the land to be opposed or sin in the camp to be exposed. Who shall we scapegoat this time around? Thus the accuser is given free reign to point the finger at the lukewarm church and the hedonism in the world. If we can rile rile ourselves into a weeping lather, perhaps breakthrough will come. Conversions will abound. Church buildings will be filled. The city will be transformed. All that stands in our way is the sin that holds back the blessing. So if we could just ferret out those sinners and get them to repent, all will be right in our world. And so who are we scapegoating now? And the author goes on, but hatred of sin and self-hatred and the hatred of the sinner are a very thin line, aren't they? Inspire our heads. Lord, I did my absolute best today. I'm sure I didn't do a perfect job. But I thank you, Lord, for these precious people that have listened. And Lord, I thank you for the powerful work that you're doing right now inside our hearts, inside our lives. Lord, some of us, we've been more American than we've been Christian. We've been more conservative or more liberal than we've been Christian. We've identified more with the flesh than we have with the Spirit. But Lord, we're your people and we love you and we know most of all that you love and adore us even when we're scapegoating. (laughs) Even when we're scapegoating you, you love us. And so Father, I just ask right now for every person that's ever felt like the scapegoat in their family. Every person that's ever felt like a scapegoat or taken the role of the scapegoat in society or on their job or in whatever social context they find themselves. Middle school. (laughs) High school. Lord, I thank you for your healing touch and your healing presence, your healing grace your healing mercy to be released over your precious people right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Yeah, I think we just, we need to, I mean, we don't, we just need to fill the altar this morning, (laughs) you know, to just let God rectify us.
So maybe if I could get the worship team or a couple members of the worship team to come up. But I, I just want to be clear. You know, we I would like some music, but all of us, myself included, all of us need to Let God begin His work and do His work that He wants to do inside us this morning. Amen? Maybe you've been the scapegoater. <laughs> I've been on both sides of this. We all have. We've been scapegoated and we've scapegoated. <laughs> yeah? We've been the accused and we've been the accuser. All of us. It's the human condition. Satan can't cast out Satan. Bottom line. (laughs) So come on, some of you, join me. Let's just come.